1: All right, everybody, welcome to this special edition of the Compliance Guy. I'm Sean Weisson. As always, I want to begin by saying thank you all so much for tuning in and logging on and just hanging out with me and my special guest for a little while as we talk about some of the coolest things going on in healthcare right now. As I said, this is a special edition because I have on the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> to me, probably the best litigator in healthcare that I've worked with in my 28-year career of doing this kind of work. And I'm talking about Ron Chapman II of the Chapman Law Firm. Welcome to the program, Counselor.
2: Thanks a lot, Sean. I appreciate you having me for this special edition.
1: Yeah, I I am really excited about this one because um, if you've been listening to the Compliance Guy podcast over the last uh, week and a half, you know that I was brought in as an expert Uh, witness Uh, at first i was a consulting expert and then i was asked uh about a few weeks prior to the trial uh hey we kind of need you to fly up here and get on the stand which is you know always good for the nerves um (laughs) but here's the deal um this case was absolutely fascinating from the very beginning all the way to the very end and all of the little intricate parts in between um Ron's going to provide us with, um, really a breakdown, but this case is the United States v. Uh, the pain center. And we're just kind of mm-hmm. calling it that for simplification. So we can just kind of, without having to go through all the technical, uh, uh, numbers and terms and things of that nature. But basically this case, um, stemmed from an OIG investigation. And again, I- I'm just laying the groundwork and, and counselor is going to go ahead and really provide us all the details, but this stemmed from an Oig investigation that took place, and in my opinion, as an outsider looking in at first, it was fatally flawed for a number of reasons and it became completely uh, uh, um, understand you know understandable as to why it was fatally flawed as more and more evidence became available to us as, as oh yeah I yeah as I got an opportunity to really Understand what was going on. Uh, Long story short, this is one of the largest healthcare fraud cases that I think has ever existed. Uh, $484 million, if I'm not mistaken, um, with only six defendants. One of the defendants had been in prison, if I'm not mistaken, since 2018, Uh, multiple requests to the parole board uh were made and they were denied for various you know for various reasons. Um but with the leadership of Ron Chapman and others from his firm, they got a trial acquittal on I believe it was 56 counts against four uh four of the six defendants in the case of yep, 54. Yeah 54. Mm-hmm. And and for four of the six defendants because two of the defendants I believe took plea agreements early on That's and right. decided to turn state's uh witnesses. Yeah, so, we'll, we'll we'll
2: talk yeah. about that. It's a the common thing that we've always discussed about, you know, who you hire as an attorney, but uh, yeah. we'll get to that.
1: <laughs> All right. So I'm going to stop there because again, um I I really want you to hear this from um Ron Chapman himself because I think the, the explanation that you're going to get is going to be just fascinating. And once again, this episode will prove why you only hire experts in litigation of health care fraud, health care issues, because That's if you right. don't, you wind up making significant mistakes. So let me stop there. Counselor, why don't you kind of take us uh, from the start? and 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 I'll kind of ask some questions as we get going here
2: yeah let's let's break it down um from the beginning. Uh, I think we've got a lot of ground to cover here, but but I hope that folks can learn exactly why this case turned out the way it, it did, and some of the strategies that we uh, used to get it there which which we'll get to, but let's lay some groundwork so Dr. Bafra had been in practice since probably two thousand and seven. He was a surgeon but opened up a private practice in um, Warren, Michigan, which is just at the doorstep of Detroit, and um, started getting into interventional pain uh, and ended up getting certified himself and hiring another doctor, Dr. Edu. The practice started to grow significantly. You know, we see this rapid growth without a compliance plan is a recipe for the government to start asking questions, right, when you start to become an, an outlier. And that, if you could, you know, Fault Dr. Bothra for anything. It was not contacting somebody like me or you early on to get everything right, but that's not criminal, right? That's just right. a compliance issue. So, um, so he then ha- starts hiring more talented interventional anesthesiologists. One of which was Dr. David Lewis, my client. Um, and uh, lo and behold, 2018, the place gets raided. Everybody gets indicted. And the government releases to the press that same day that the entire clinic was fraud and there was $484 million worth of healthcare fraud. We wanted to go to trial quickly, but the COVID pandemic hit um, after I arrived on the case and the case was continuously stayed. We eventually got it to trial. Um, and, and here, here's the, here are the, the shortfalls of the government, and, and I'll just digress for a second. First, we're seeing that the people who are taking the prosecutors who are taking healthcare fraud cases, while they may be part of a healthcare fraud division or a DOJ strike force, they have this difference of opinion um, from me and that they believe that healthcare fraud, because they've determined that something is fraudulent, absolves them from any responsibility to follow Medicare's guidance. Um proper auditing, statistical sampling methodologies. And when I argue these things in court, both judges and prosecutors are looking at me like, this is a criminal case. You're arguing civil stuff. Well, this trial proved that that's not true. We just needed to convince a jury that these things need to be followed. And that's where your testimony became uh, so vital in the case. And and I also want to mention, I couldn't think of a better place to, to, to say the first words about this case and how it turned out than your podcast Not only were you involved in the case, um, but I think that your listeners, the collection of people that are are, um, devoted to listening to your podcast, will really get something out of this. And as we continue to be on the podcast and have the roundtable that we're ready for, I think that we can continue to provide more information about how this model that we've developed will help people. So we get to trial. And and here's our our defense theory. Government – came up with their theory from the beginning of the case after only sending six charts to their expert for review. Six charts. They argued $484 million worth of fraud. The entire practice was fraudulent. Every code, every procedure, every patient, and that's just an untenable theory. These prosecutors want to make headlines by claiming large amounts of fraud, but when it actually comes to proving it, that's a different story. So knowing that they had decided to anchor their boat to this island, right, um, of four hundred and eighty-four million dollars worth of fraud, we felt as a defense team and, and as the only healthcare expert on the defense team, well, Al Rogalski knows healthcare very well as well, but I felt like I had to carry this um, this burden a lot on, on my back for the entire defense team. But we figured that if we could convince the jury that this all fraud theory was complete BS, they would at least not trust the government's representations. And I I say it in the book time and time again, trials are about what, Sean? Credibility, right? They're all about credibility. And when you can find and show the jury that the government doesn't have any They'll look through that evidence with a critical eye. So your only job as a defense attorney during trial is to erode the credibility of the prosecution and get the jury to see that they're being sold a story that just isn't true. So we attacked this $484 million number. Well, how would we do it? We did it by doing the government's job for them,
1: right? That's right.
2: We did um, uh, somewhat of a statistical analysis of the practice. We had our expert review the specific files that they looked at to cover down on that and show that there was no fraud committed. Um, But then we put you on the stand to testify about all the things the government must do according to their own regulations um, that, that would be required to prove that the entire clinic was fraudulent. Once the jury heard all of that, they didn't have to go too far to realize that this case was a political hack that it never should have been brought, that they were overselling it. Now, as trial progressed and this all fraud theory completely eroded, we were sitting and waiting for the government's closing argument to see if they were going to stick to their theory or if they were going to back down and maybe try to isolate one or two counts. Well, these prosecutors didn't back down. They doubled down on their all fraud theory. They just... Tried to argue that our statistical evidence was not reliable, but then all I had to do is stand up and say, "Where's the government statistical sampling?" The courtroom was packed with prosecutors during the closing argument. Investigators have been all over the place. It, we we had poor Ryan Vaughn fly all the way in from Bali to present some numbers, and they've got agents right over here in Detroit who can yeah. who can do this work easily. They they want to they want to tell you something, but they don't want to prove it. Um, sure. So. Seven weeks of trial, um, a lot of our defense was bo- focused on um, this this theory of disproving all fraud and showing the government did not show their work um, or even do their work properly. A Couple of other elements that are important to point out. Uh, first, you gotta have the defendant testify, period. If you're facing these kinds of allegations, you've got to. Dr. Bothra chose not to testify, that's his choice. That's right. Um, Dr. Rousseau chose not to testify. That's his choice. Thankfully, Dr. Edu and Dr. Lewis, my client and a very good attorney, Bob Harrison's client, took the stand. Um, and what we did during our client testimony was try to provide all of the substance that you would likely hear from these other people to make up for it. So we were able to to somewhat overcome that burden. Um, that was incredibly important. And then just solid cross-examination of every investigator about what they could have done to prove the theory and what they didn't do to prove the theory. Um, A court security officer, we call them CSOs, um, came up to me, a very nice man, observed the entire trial, said, um, I've observed probably hundreds of trials over the years. I watched your closing. Uh, Everything was fantastic. This case shouldn't have been brought. But he said, you know, the most impactful slide that, that I saw in, in your closing was, uh, where's the medical board? Um, where Where's the audit that was conducted and the provider education that you established, Sean? Yep. Where was the Warren Police Department, the city police department to say this place was a cesspool of fraudulent activity? Um, because they would know if patients were complaining or if there were drug deals or anything in the parking
1: yeah, lot. Yeah, you would think so, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, where was, I think I might've mentioned it, but the board of medicine, where was Jayco when they were running through this practice, certifying it, when did they say there were any problems? So I think we always have to remember that when we're dealing with a case like this, we don't just look at the surfaces of the government's case and try to attack them. We also have to look at the gaps because when we do that, when we play to those gaps in the government's investigation, we can create an almost impossible burden for the government to overcome. Unless they make really good use of their four or five weeks of testimony that they've got uh, in terms of putting witnesses on. Um, you know, this is of my last five trials. We've got four acquittals on the substantial issues in the case. The three of those were complete acquittals, no questions. One of them, the Dr. Campbell case, was a conviction on some minor issues, but an acquittal on all the majors, including distribution causing death. Of those five cases, one of them is up before the Supreme Court. So we're really looking at four acquittals and then one case that soon, sometime today, the Supreme Court will decide on. That's now versus United States. Um, our trial record is, is unmatched, and I don't mean to brag about that, but I think that it's important to note that for one reason, one reason only. When I decided to go and get a healthcare education, education and, and learn all of this stuff and start applying that to defending clients, Um, we start thinking with the civil false claims act attorney's mind and applying that to these fraud cases. And as, as we've been able to do that and put a team together, that's able to do that. The results have been astounding, right? These cases all should have been brought as false claims act cases. And so if we take a lot of those strategies from those cases that we would use sampling and extrapolation, for example, we can apply that here, and we get tremendous victories. The juries reward us for it, and um, that's one of the reasons why I created Chapman Consulting Group so we can apply that model to other criminal cases across the country. Don't
1: don't you don't you think, Ron, that one of the reasons why we're not seeing as many FCA cases being brought, and we're seeing the transition to more healthcare fraud statute cases? is because the healthcare fraud statute really allows prosecutors, if you will, to paint with a very broad brush. And the same burden that would exist in an FCA case isn't the same standard or same burden to a certain degree in a healthcare fraud statute case. And and what I mean by that is, under the false claims statute, there's a provision in there that simply states if reasonable persons can disagree on whether or not a claim was false, then the government has failed to establish yep. that there was a violation of the False Claims Act. Am I, am, am I overstating that, or am I misstating that?
2: No, you, you, you're absolutely right, um, and and this is exactly why the prosecutors are bringing more criminal cases. We have this situation, and, and to borrow to borrow from from Maverick in the first Top Gun. Um we're we're inverted, right? Uh you would think that um fo- the false claims act burden uh would be lesser than the, the 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 burden required or required to put somebody in jail for up to 20 years. Right. Uh 10 years for healthcare for 20 for wire if they decide to charge it that way. You would think that it would be harder, but it it's not. And and this is partly because of um uh Escobar. I think, you know, Universal Health, Escobar, um, the materiality requirements on the FCA side are very, very stringent, and and you actually have to prove it. Um, but those protections have not translated technically to the um, the fraud world. So in this case, the one that we're talking about, the pain center case, the government simply stated in its indictment because it could convince a grand jury that the defendants improperly billed Medicare for procedures and visits. They basically said they did everything wrong, right? Right. They didn't have to specifically plead what they did wrong. So then they went fishing at trial and said, well, too many 99214s, uh, too many procedures, right? But they didn't actually have to prove um, to a grand jury that the claims were false on their face and there were material misstatements made because Escobar has not technically been applied to criminal decisions. I've argued to appellate courts and to district courts that Escobar should apply, because as the Supreme Court said, the materiality standards in Escobar are exactly the same as the materiality standards, I think Justice Thomas wrote the opinion, a popular guy these days, um, are exactly the same standards in, in fraud cases, but district courts aren't applying it. That's, that's my next mission, right? We got a good decision on the Supreme Court opiate stuff. I'm happy about that. Now I'm going to pave the way for that. It's time to transition into getting district courts and circuit courts to understand that if you want to bring a healthcare fraud prosecution on that indictment, you need to plead material false statements and say exactly what they are.
1: You know, it's interesting. I actually wrote a paper on Escobar, I wrote yeah. an entire position paper on Escobar. Um, I actually, I, I, it was probably, when I joined LinkedIn, it was probably one of the very first posts that I ever did. Um, and it, it it was interesting because I felt like, you know, it, it was such an important case for so many reasons. And maybe it was just a little too soon for when I posted it. But I think in having this conversation, I'm going to dig that one up from the archives. Yeah. Tell you what I'd like to do, if you're cool with this, I'd love to send it over to you. And maybe update it a little bit and modernize it, and then push it out as a uh, co-authored paper if you're willing to do that.
2: I'd love to, and we can start talking about how the materiality in Escobar should apply uh, to um, to healthcare fraud. And in in my amicus brief that I'll file or or um, petition for cert, I'm sorry, my notifications are buzzing here.
1: Um, right.
2: Or petition for cert, you know, we can cite that paper and uh, and hopefully get it in front of the
1: court. Yeah. So going back to so, yeah, let's let's absolutely do that. And, you know, I'm excited about the Ruan uh, ruling as well. Um, Yeah. You know, I had a I had I don't want to stray too far away, but I had a, a fascinating conversation with a former DOJ prosecutor yesterday. And I said, you know, it's it's really going to be a, a, a high level of accountability that is placed on to prosecutors now when it comes to making a determination as to whether or not to bring charges against a legitimate prescriber right you know there's something that our our listeners need to understand there's something called prosecutorial discretion yep and in my in my opinion in the cases that I've been asked to work on you know, like the Campbell case. Even though I was not part of the Substance Control Act portion, right? Because that's not my lane. I still, I still do a ton of research on it. I'm, mm-hmm. i I understand it. And for me, you know, the the district court was the problem, right? Because the district court, I think it was the ninth, if, uh, the ninth Circuit Court, <coughs> that made the ruling on it. But they, they really kind of hand tied the prosecutors when it came to you know having to file certain charges but you know my argument with this former prosecutor yesterday was that it's it's not really about accountability on the prosecutor's part it's about prosecutorial discretion and it's about not bringing these cases and i think for me the Ruan case is huge because if you think about all of the patients out there that have legitimate problems where they need something to take the edge off of the pain they need yeah. pain management care not just an injection they need things for breakthrough pain we have physicians that have patients that just had surgery under general anesthesia where you know there's going to be post-operative pain and they don't want to prescribe anything they're sending them home with Tylenol because they're petrified of being targeted and charged
2: Yep. Yeah, no you're absolutely right um, there is a, a a consensus that is brewing right now that, that the Rouen decision dramatically changed opiate prosecutions. Yes. Um, at the risk of people being upset generally and at me, I don't believe that it will. And here's no. why. Um, over the last four years, prosecutors have tried to argue, as they did in this case, that the Controlled Substances Act... Um, Bars a doctor from stepping outside of objective prescribing criteria. That's their new mission. This has only come up over the last
1: few years. Previous- and, and just for everybody listening, this the the, the the controlled substance act was a huge part of this this pain center case.
2: Well, yeah, they they argued. In fact, I should give some background on that. The government argued that opiates were used to hook patients um, into the practice uh, by getting them addicted. Uh, and then, and then perform unnecessary objections. That theory ended up being complete hogwash. And that's what, one of the reasons why the jury acquitted uh, the Ruan decision came out. The morning, the judge was reading instructions to the jury. Uh, never had that happen in my entire career. Same with the judge, huge Supreme court decision. We had to scramble with it. And this is the first Ruan post Ruan case. Okay. Yeah. You know, so the, over the last four years or so, The government has started to argue there's objective criteria for prescribing, and if you fall outside of that, you are not um, being a doctor and you can be convicted. Prior to that, the government didn't have this theory. And so when they were deciding who to charge, they were pretty much going after uh, the pill mills where the conduct was a little bit more obvious. They certainly prosecuted a lot of close calls, and there were some acquittals out there. But for the most part, the cases we were seeing were a lot more problematic than the cases that we have here. The Ruon decision coming out basically said objective criteria, falling outside of objective criteria is not enough. The doctor must subjectively believe, even though Justice Breyer didn't use the word subjective, he avoided it for various reasons, right. but, but the reality is the doctor must have subjectively believed that they were falling outside of their authorization to prescribe. So they knew that they were prescribing for no legitimate medical purpose and outside the course of professional practice. That means the doctor must have knowledge that their conduct is unlawful and not just that they violated some objective requirement. So um, I don't think it will stem opiate prosecutions. I think prosecutors will say, "Okay, we tried to expand the reach of a statute and we got pulled back a little bit. Um I'm really interested to see what happens in Naum, which is my other case before the Supreme Court. In that case, we're arguing that the standard outside the course of professional practice and for other than a legitimate medical purpose um, can't be severed, and so the prosecution must show that if patient didn't have a need for the medication and the doctor stepped outside of of their bounds. I don't want to digress too much, but we're going to get a lot more movement in the opiate arena when that decision is 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 out or if that case gets argued and i think it would have to be next term because this term closes today
1: yeah you know and and i'll and i'll i'll leave this subject with this i was really shocked that in the rouen case it was not a nine to zero ruling i was really surprised on that that it was a six to three but whatever the case i thought Breyer did a masterful job of um you know of of writing the majority opinion on it yeah um I, I found it interesting that he stopped short of overturning the rouen conviction and remanded it back to or sent it back to the lower courts and i think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens there with the two physicians in this case but we'll, we'll keep our eye on that and obviously as you know you're you're part of the new uh, legal roundtable that we're going to be doing um every month and I can't wait for the um, the the last of your uh, cases that are before the Supreme Court to get ruled on. And I think you said it's going to be ruled on today, possibly, right?
2: Yeah, there may be something in my email inbox from the Supreme Court telling me if they if I'll be arguing next term um, in front of you know the new Justice Jackson and and, and the rest yeah. of the bench. Uh, let me be mention: Ruan was technically a nine to nothing um, when judges concur. They're agreeing with the outcome, but not necessarily with the reasoning. With the reason. Yeah. yeah. So we'll give them a nine to nothing on that. So uh,
1: I, I agree with you. I, I agree with you on the concurrent ruling. Absolutely. And okay. I, I apologize. I should have said that. But no, let's, okay. let's, go, let's, go back to, let's go back to the trial. Um, because, I, again, and I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for some of the cross examinations that you did. Um, because it, it, to me, it was just so egregious. I'll tell you, you know, normally I know like from doing this for so many years, sitting on a stand and being cross-examination or cross-examined, mm-hmm. um, I know really based on the first question, whether or not I'm in for a heck of a ride or whether or not the prosecutor is going to have their hands full of me. Yeah. And out of the gate, when the biggest challenge that was thrown at me was, well, Mr. Weish, you're not an FBI agent. Mr. Weiss, you're not an OIG agent. Mr. Weiss, you're not a prosecutor. I thought to myself, if that's the best that they're going to throw at me, well, then on redirect, it's going to be pretty simple to be able to say, no, you're right, I'm not. But after 28 years of working in this industry and employing former FBI agents, or retired FBI agents, they hate when I say former, because that implies something nefarious, but retired FBI agents, retired OIG agents, working with former prosecutors for the duration of, you know, time that I've been doing this, you learn the inner workings of these governmental agencies. And, you know, again, you, you read, you study, you become a master of your craft, and you understand stuff far beyond what even people working in those institutions, in those agencies, actually know. But the other part that was really fascinating to me was the pure lack of understanding for how evaluation and management services work.
2: Well, this is it, yeah, uh, Sean. I mean, you hit the nail on that here. First, uh, the prosecutor. I won't. I won't name him, and I don't want to malign anybody. But he's no longer with that office. He left the the last day of trial. So um,
1: uh,
2: a former patent attorney, not sure how many trials, if any, in the healthcare fraud arena and uh, wrangling a very difficult concept, uh, E&M codes and injection codes that many of us have spent our careers on and are still learning. Also incident two. Um, When you put somebody like you on the stand, who's just an absolute dictionary of uh, you know this medical legal uh, stuff and, and and billing issues and healthcare compliance um, there 's not a question that he could ask, especially if you are well grounded in your opinion that would shake you off of what you believe because he just does not have the mental acuity necessary to understand even the fundamentals of these concepts but then also to turn them around against you. Um, And, you know, I advised Dr. Murphy of this, the other expert, and I think I mentioned this to you. Um, You you wait for your opening. And when you get an open-ended question, um, you deliver that uppercut, right? Uh, You answer truthfully and in a tight way. And then when you get your opening, um, you you lay it on the jury and and we score points in cross-examination as well as direct examination. And you did an expert job of that. I'll put you on any stand in this country in front of any jury uh, and they're going to recognize that not only are you handsome, but you're intelligent as well. (laughs) That was
1: totally unexpected, but thank you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And it's going to work out well for, for the client. Um, You know, you just had somebody who didn't have the experience to box in this arena uh, trying to go up against somebody. Again, another reason why we've got to start leveraging all of these capabilities that we have available to us in these federal criminal cases. These cases can no longer be tried by the federal criminal defense attorney who's doing a murder, a bank robbery, a child molestation case, and then, oh, hey, I'll take a healthcare fraud case, right? That's right. That's, just, that's not, not what we can do. Um, we were the only defense team with you, with Vaughn, um, with the statistical evidence, with a really, really solid expert. Uh, who laid out an appropriate standard. We were the only team with a very solid opening statement and PowerPoint showing the jury rules and regulations and a closing argument that was fact intensive, healthcare law intensive, and really showed the jury um, what the government missed. My defense counterparts did a fantastic job. They all carried their weight during trial, but I firmly believe that without the healthcare knowledge and experience that you and I would bring to the table, we're looking at a completely different outcome in the pain center case. And we're looking at doctors in jail and lives shattered and a, an impact to the healthcare community in Detroit.
1: Yeah. I, listen, I agree with you 100%. And, you know, I, I get an opportunity to work with a lot of healthcare attorneys. And th- there's some great ones out there, right? You know, the Brianna Santolis, the Amanda Weshes, the Robert Lyles, the Gabriel Imperados, you know, the Colin Callahan's. You know, these are folks that have dedicated their career not only to leveling the playing field for their clients from a legal perspective, but mastering the craft and the and and the complex world of Medicare rules and regulations as it applies to coding, billing, documentation, um, provisional guidelines like Incident Two. And you know, that was another thing. It was it was absolutely mind blowing to me that you know. They brought up incident two, which, you know, I, for me, when somebody brings up incident two, you know, I, I always want to kind of, you know, gauge where they're going with it. But, you know, the, the fact that they didn't recognize that you can have any physician who is part of a group practice in a physician-directed clinic supervise the patients receiving the services in the absence of the treating physician. As long as they're there in the facility and they're immediately available to engage if there's a problem. You know, he, he kept sticking to, but it requires direct supervision. Well, you're right. It does. But it can be rendered by any of the supervising physicians that are part of the physician group.
2: And Sean, that's only half the story here because you didn't know this, but when he started trial, he thought that these claims were all fraudulent simply because they were in the name of another doctor. He thought that a physical therapist, when they render a service, must bill in the physical therapist's name. And if a doctor bills physical therapy, they're telling the insurance company that they perform the physical therapy. Same thing with the other visits. Um, He just didn't know. And then when we cross-examined his agent on Incident 2, and there were literal crickets in the courtroom when we were asking him about these concepts, he then pivoted and tried to argue that Incident 2 isn't applicable. And the jury could see that he was learning healthcare law as he was going through the trial. I even said that in closing argument. You could tell the government was learning, which tells you everything you need to know about their investigation to begin with. This isn't the time to start making up theories, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, I you know, Eric Rubenstein tells me all the time. You know, I, I would, and, and, and I never thought about it until he said it like two or three times. You know, he's like, you would have made a great OIG agent because you're objective and you're reasonable and you use, you know, processes to be able to make a determination as to whether there's any there there, as opposed to just simply jumping to a conclusion. You know, yeah. you create a hypothesis and then you try to prove that hypothesis yeah. wrong. Um, You know, this case, just like the Jeffrey Campbell case um, that, you know, I got, you know to work with you on i think it was last year yep um, exactly. so this two criminal last year. yeah two criminal cases in one year that's that's yeah so th- i'll tell you what i tell people all the time for me this is a ton of fun i have a lot of people that act as experts and they're like how can you even think this is fun well because for me when you study and you en- and you engulf yourself in something that you are truly passionate about and that you can speak intelligently about, and you can take complex matters and break it down into plain language for people who don't work in this industry to be able to understand, Yep, it it becomes fun. And it was kind of fun for me watching the jury because you did a a phenomenal job, seriously. I know some of the listeners are going to be like, oh my God, this is like a, a, a bro fest or something, but this is the truth i wish i wish they would have like a cctv or something where you could watch some of this stuff yeah because what what ron did during the direct examination which i think should be taught in you know you know direct examination 101 in law school he asked simple simple questions john is there any guidance or regulations that exist in Medicare for how an audit takes place. Yep. Well, and then, in, and that was it. It wasn't, you know, this long complex question broken down into 27 parts. Mm-hmm. It was a straightforward question. And the simple answer was yes. Chapter three, section 3.2.3.4. Yep. And it specifically talks about the following. Sean, is there any guidance or instructions as to law enforcement engaging in audits for Medicare? Yes, there is. Chapter four. Sean, is there any guidance or regulations regarding statistical analysis and Hmm. how and when statistical sampling can be deployed? Yes, there is. Chapter. And it was so, it was so easy. Yep. and 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 I was watching as we were going through our our direct examination, watching the members of the jury kind of looking at each other, going, "What just happened?" and then watching them scribble down notes, yep. right, trying to is what is that section? what is that chapter?" And then at the same time, I'm not sure who the gentleman was that was sitting behind the prosecutors in the first row, but like he was frantically writing notes on these yellow stickies and handing it to them. And I'm yeah. watching the, the the two prosecutors looking at each other, literally going. Yeah. Okay.
2: So um, that was done for a very specific purpose. Trials are about closing arguments. Um, you can score points in terms of momentum during the trial, but it's like regular season and playoffs, right? You've got to do enough well enough to get, you know, and get through the regular season in order to make the playoffs, but the playoffs are where you really show up closing arguments, the playoffs here. So I'm inviting curiosity and not really closing the loop on many of these concepts with the jury by just saying, Hey, Sean, what is this? And what is this? And what is this? And, you know, let's talk about that. I don't expect the jury to really put all of that together and why it's important until the closing. But the one thing I want, the two things I want to do during trial uh, before we get to closing, is I want them to think with a skeptical mind and erode the prosecution's credibility, and then I also want to invite their curiosity and whet their appetite to certain concepts, so that they're eagerly listening to the prosecution, going, "I wonder what Ron's going to do to tie in some of these things that we learned about, and I wonder if he's going to show me why these are important for this case." So. That's the, the vital role that you played. You whet their appetite with some rules and regulations that applied and we didn't have to go too deep. In fact, I didn't even ask you to opine on any anything that was done in this case or review any records. I just wanted you to get up there and say what the regulations said because in closing we showed that the government had this huge burden and we're supposed to do all of these things and they didn't do any of them. And I talked about you heavily in closing. I'll um I'll share some of the closing slides. I'm going to do an ar- article on Federal Defense Blog uh, that goes through the trial strategy, so that other people can get a hold of it. And if they want to use um, our suite of of capabilities available for their healthcare fraud cases, you know, they can do it. Um, yep. So that we can provide benefit to the community and save doctors from getting, you know, um, hurt by these aggressive policies. I-, I will admit, Sean, I committed an egregious podcast violation a few moments ago. Uh-oh. I, I checked my email. And in it, there two, in it were two emails from the Supreme Court of the United ah. States. Um, the first one was uh, vacating the Fourth Circuit judgment in Now versus United States and remanding it back, which means he's overturned. And the next one was vacating couch the United States and sending it back. Uh, we expect that next at some point, both of those circuit courts of appeals will take a look at them and potentially vacate those convictions, which is what we're looking for. So, great news all around this week.
1: Is is there a white collar attorney hall of fame?
2: <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> they need some of those, like the podcast awards that you're 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 getting all over the place. Maybe we need some awards like that. The only awards <laughs> that there are in the legal field are the ones where you have to pay your three hundred bucks and uh, and then you get your name that you can post on your website, and I don't do any of that stuff.
1: <laughs> Super lawyer or yeah. something like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so here's the last question that I have for you. Mm-hmm. My understanding is it took the jury only 10 hours to deliberate. That's now, we're hours. talking about a seven-week trial, yeah. okay? 10 hours approximately to deliberate and return a verdict. Yep. Prior to the reading of the verdict, were you nervous that they were able to come back so quickly with a verdict?
2: I shouldn't admit to this, yeah, but I'm going to because it's you. You're like okay. the you're like the sports reporter on Jerry Maguire where you get everybody to cry. You know? <laughs> uh, you, you remember that? I hope some of your listeners yeah. remember that movie. Uh of money. Yeah, exactly. Um, I I wrote I wrote the press release before I walked into court that morning. Um, I I knew what was going to happen. Um, I could see it. Um, I would not normally be so presumptuous, but I knew the night before that the jury would have a verdict in the morning, and I knew that this was a diligent and attentive jury, and I knew that if they wanted to convict these guys, they would look through the evidence, and 10 hours isn't enough time to – let me put this into perspective. The jury can't talk about the case until they go to deliberations, and I don't know what happened in that room, and that's all between them, and I don't care too much. But 10 hours isn't enough time to really figure out where the evidence is and start looking at it. I think they walked in there. They took a couple of votes. They realized that the government's credibility had been completely eroded. And, um, you know, they they ran the score sheet, 54 to nothing, in favor of the defendants here. And one of the most beautiful moments in my career will be watching those handcuffs taken off of Dr. Bothra, who'd been in jail for 42 months and watching his daughter give him a big hug and there wasn't a dry eye in the courtroom. Um, Dr. Edu's wife came up and gave me, you know, the most heartfelt hug. I held my composure until just about that moment and started to feel feel some things. And uh, it was just uh, an incredible victory, but I am very irritated that the government has put those people in that position. I think that it's an absolute abuse of power to continue to apply what should be, you know, these civil issues um, in a criminal context. And I hope that we in some way have eroded um, the U.S. attorney's faith in their prosecutors to get these cases off the ground. And if I'm litigating myself out of a job, that's fine. Because if that means one less doctor gets hurt by what's been going on in this country, I'm okay, okay with that. We'll find other
1: things to do. Absolutely. I lied to you. I had one more question, Yeah, but I will say this in, in, in keeping, in keeping composure, because that was one of the things that's always hard, right? Yeah. Um, after I got off the stand and, you know, the, the court adjourned, I think it was for lunch, um, you know, having Dr. Lewis come up to me with his wife and I think that was his parents. And yeah saying the heartfelt things that they said to me um you know because i'm not a very emotional person i'm i'm, I'm a regulatory guy man i'm black <laughs> and white i don't have any feelings you CMS know?
2: didn't give you emotions sean they would <laughs> put that in the regulation if they wanted you to <laughs>
1: but you know it, 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 it to me it, that was that was the greatest reward um was having you know the defendant and their family coming up to me, telling me how much they appreciated you know what I did and what they thought of the testimony that I gave. But I said I was done asking you questions, but I lied. I have one more question for you. Originally, there were six defendants in this case, of which two of those defendants decided to take plea agreements, and they broke from the other four. And I'm just wondering, if there's any regret on the part of those two physicians, given the fact that you all were able to achieve a total acquittal,
2: yeah. So, so those two um, physicians hired attorneys who've done healthcare fraud cases before. Um, I know them very well. They're they're very good attorneys, and I'm sure that they would have looked into their client's specific circumstances and realized that maybe it wasn't worth the risk, or maybe there were you know, particular things about their conduct that were, that was problematic um, and advise them. The unfortunate issue for them is they've pled guilty to federal offenses pursuant to plea agreements that will subject them to sentencing by a federal judge, Judge Murphy. And the federal judge is not going to think about the fact that the other physicians got acquitted when handing down that sentence. So you will have two people that will be in jail for conduct that 12 jurors determined uh, was not outside the line. Um, it's a shame. Yeah. Uh, some may say, and I think are already saying on Twitter, you sort of get what you deserve. Um, I think it's unfortunate because those two people had to make a very difficult decision. I have no ill will towards them, yeah. and they have their own uh, issues to consider. But, you know, let's face it, going going to federal trial is Rolling, rolling the dice. I mean, our outcomes have been great. Um, Four out of five with one just got, you know, getting vacated. We're damn near five five out of five right now. Um, But but that's not the case for everybody. Ninety nine point five percent of federal defendants get convicted. These um, four defendants who were acquitted um, are rare. And those physicians had to make uh, make their own decision. I hope the judge goes easy on them, Um, maybe hopefully without some jail time. But, you know, they do they do get the benefit of their bargain at this point.
1: Yeah, that Mm -hmm. is true. Yeah. All right. Well, this brings us to the very end of this special edition podcast with my really good friend, Ron Chapman. Um, Super attorney. Um, I'm telling you, if if there's not a white collar attorney Hall of Fame, there should be. (laughs) um and he should be in my opinion the first inductee um it's been nothing but a total privilege and an honor to be able to watch you uh, uh dance like Fred Astaire in the courtroom and to watch how you control a room when you are you know at that podium so with that said counselor thank you so much I know again you had Two decisions vacated today at the Supreme Court level. That is huge, 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 huge. Um, the Rouen case um, being remanded back as well. Basically, it's vacated and it's being sent back to the lower courts. I mean, that's a huge, huge win. And I think we're going to really see what comes of that. Um, congratulations on one of the largest healthcare fraud, trial acquittals um, in my lifetime uh, that I'm aware of. Um, you deserve all the praise that goes to you. Uh, folks, again, I say it on every podcast when we talk with healthcare-centered attorneys. This is why you use somebody who is a master of their craft. Don't get somebody who's handled your third divorce or who handled your trust or who put together your your estate or something like that you're just asking for problems get with the right people and if you don't know who to call call me and i'll get you to the right people or to the right person all right with that said as always thank you all so much for tuning in logging on and hanging out with us for just a little while as always remember be good to yourself but more importantly be good to each other And until next time, take care.
0: You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. (laughs) So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.